0: Let the word go forth, from this time and place, to friend and foe alike.
1: This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. History doesn't have to be boring, buttoned up or inaccessible, and it certainly didn't end in 1945. It belongs to all of us, and we share and add to it every day. Welcome to the History of Go-Go podcast, where I interview interesting guests, cover a motley crew of topics, and it's a place where you can sit, think, and drink all at the same time. I'm your host, Rob Mellon. My guest today is Timothy Weingart. Dr. Weingard received his Master's in War Studies from the Royal Military College of Canada and a Ph.D. in History from the University of Oxford. He served as an officer with the Canadian Armed Forces, including an attachment to the British Army. Weingard is currently a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, Colorado. As a true Canadian, he is also the head coach of Colorado Mesa University's hockey team. So I have to say, rumble Mavs. He has written several books and articles, including his book Indigenous Peoples of British Dominions and the First World War, that was in 2011, Canadian Indians in the First World War, 2012, and The First World Oil War, published in 2016. His 2019 work, The Mosquito A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator, was a New York Times, LA Times, and international bestseller, and now is published in 15 languages. Amazing. And that will be our topic of discussion today. Of the mosquito, the Denver Post writes, heavily detailed and witty, and The Economist states, thrilling. A lively history of mosquitoes, Mr. Weingard convincingly argues that the insect has shaped human life as well as delivering death. Mr. Weingard is an engaging guide, especially when he combines analysis with anecdote. It's been at or below zero here for the last two weeks, so I'm fortunate to not have any of the world's deadliest predators around me at the current moment. And I'm also fortunate to have the author of The Mosquito here with us today. Welcome, Tim.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: Now, Dr. Weingard, I don't know if you know, but we have a featured beer in every episode here at History of Go-Go. <laughs> I have to know, right off the bat, let's get the important stuff finished and out of the way. Is it true mosquitoes like beer and target beer drinkers?
0: It is true. there's a whole various reasons that some people are more attractive to to mosquitoes than others, and obviously it's the, it's only the female mosquito that that bites. but um, beer drinkers are one of them, and it was a study done um, I believe by Japanese scientists specifically about beer. There hasn't been studies done on wine or a hard liquor yet, but they think it's because it raises the body temperature a little bit and also raises the co two levels in, in people so um, and as well as lactic acid, so that's what they think. Attracts, <laughs> attracts the mosquitoes when you're drinking beer, unfortunately.
1: Tim, as I just mentioned, it is tradition here to accompany the discussion with a special brew. Today, we have Vicious Mosquito India Pale Ale from the Sun River Brewing Company of Sun River, Oregon. This IPA has a clear and golden color with a floral aroma. It has a very nice taste with hints of pine and tropical citrus. Now, Sun River Brewing Company offers Vicious Mosquito year-round, and it's become one of their flagship beers. Sun River, Oregon, also has an interesting past, as it is located on the grounds of former Camp Abbott, a U.S. Army base during World War II that trained combat engineers. Sun River was also the residence of John Wayne and Catherine Hepburn when they filmed the western Rooster Cogburn in 1974. Now, this is also my time to remind you to subscribe to the podcast. Simply click on the subscribe button on the directory that you use and get new material immediately after it is published. Subscribing is the only way to get new shows right away. And to the ever-expanding list of supporters and listeners from 50 countries, that's right, I said 50 countries, and hundreds of cities across America, I would like to say thank you. And now, I raise my vicious mosquito IPA very high. And to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and all of the organizations around the globe fighting to prevent mosquito-borne diseases, I say cheers. Before we get into the historical impact of the mosquito, your book makes it terrifyingly clear that it is the world's greatest predator. Why is it that this tiny little creature is so dangerous and so deadly?
0: Um, well, I think it's important for important for your listeners to know the mosquito flying solo, essentially without a, a hitchhiking pathogen, is harmless. Female mosquitoes bite simply because they need the blood of humans and a zoological Noah's Ark of of other animals simply to grow and mature their eggs and procreate and continue their species and and be good mothers. So, um, it's the pathogens that essentially hitch a, hitch a free ride or are vectored by certain mosquito species that that cause so much suffering, death, and, and, and you know, um, a horror across the planet. Again, not just in humans, but a whole host of other animals. For example, canine heartworm is caused by the mosquito. And we all love our dogs and, and give them that medication. So a whole host of animals also are affected by mosquito-borne pathogens or mosquito-borne disease. So I think it one that the creature, the mosquitoes, universal except for Iceland and a handful of Pacific Islands and Antarctica. So various viruses and worms and, and malaria have found a way to kind of hitch a free ride via this universal global mosquito. So um, I think that's why it's such a good, it's a perfect, in a military sense, a perfect delivery system for these, these biological weapons.
1: I've heard that half of all humans that have ever lived have had some form of mosquito-borne disease. Is that true?
0: The statistics that I use in my book is that half of all human beings that have existed across our (laughs) our relatively brief existence, so uh, 200,000 to 300,000 years as modern Homo sapiens, have been killed by a mosquito-borne pathogen, and specifically malaria is the big killer. That study was done in the 80s by a, Nobel Prize-winning mathematician, geneticist, and um, medical uh, mathematician, geneticist and medical doctor, named Barack Bloomberg. So that's where those statistics originally come from, and have been quoted by numerous people since. So obviously, those are estimates, you know, and extrapolations, and and we could never prove that definitively. But we know, looking, you know, throughout the primary sources, that mosquito-borne pathogens have been with us since. Actually, before our modern Homo sapiens, they followed our our evolutionary journey, as well as the great apes, too. They all have mosquito-borne pathogens. So, Lucy, our our hominid ancestor, had uh, malaria.
1: It's also been said that the mosquito is one of the most adaptable and magnificent creatures natural selection has ever produced. How does the mosquito actually draw blood? What is the biological mechanics of it?
0: Yeah, so when we look at the mosquito itself, the mosquito in modern its modern form give or take shows up in the Jurassic period. so about 190 million years ago we get the mosquito and, and she certainly fed on the, the blood of dinosaurs as Jurassic Park and <laughs> the movies make clear.' <laughs> um, I'll be honored but the funny part about the, the the mosquito in Jurassic Park that's in the amber and you know the whole movie' the theme, of, is that that mosquito actually, one it's a male mosquito. Two, it's one of the few, few, few mosquito species on the planet that don't actually bite. So there's a whole lot wrong with that mosquito in the the Jurassic Park movie. But so they survived, obviously, the dinosaur, the extinction of the the dinosaurs in that that cataclysmic event 65 million years ago. So the mosquito has has adapted, again, to feed on humans and a whole host of of other animals. So again, only the females bite. And essentially, there's six, uh, call them needles, if you will. The first needle goes in and essentially probes and looks for you know a prime blood vessel to bite, and then two needles saw into your skin. Think of like an electric carving knife, like you use at Thanksgiving. They saw into the skin while two other needles act as essentially um, retractors and hold open the puncture site. And then the straw goes in to suck the blood, and then a sixth needle goes in that pumps saliva in, which contains an anticoagulant, so the, the puncture site doesn't you know close up, and she can get her her blood meal. So it's actually extremely sophisticated, and no blood is actually exchanged during mosquito bites, so the mosquito can't transmit HIV or all these other things that people worried about initially when HIV came out, because no blood's actually exchanged. But when she's pumping in that saliva with the anticoagulant, that also contains or can contain those pathogens. So whether it's malaria, West Nile virus, yellow fever, Eastern equine encephalitis, Zika, you name it. So that's where the transmission of these pathogens occurs.
1: Now to the historical impact, and let's start with ancient Greece and then Alexander the Great. Alexander is one of the greatest military commanders in the history of the world, but his conquest, as impressive as any in the ancient world, pale in comparison to who you call General Anopheles. (laughs) Yep. How did the mosquito, yeah, how did the mosquito affect the Greeks and Alexander the Great's campaigns?
0: Well, again, there's 35, so just a little bit of background, there's roughly 3,500 different kinds of mosquitoes on the planet and only about 6% are even capable of vectoring or transmitting pathogens, so it's not all mosquito species that can do this, it's actually a very select few. So, the, the genus Anopheles is strictly the, the mosquitoes that transmit malaria. So the Aedes gene, Aedes aegypti is a big one, but it does yellow fever and chikungunya and all the viruses. So the Anopheles genus is the, the malaria mosquito, if you will. So that's why I say general Anopheles because malaria is the the, the prime killer of humanity and has been a, a scourge of human beings across our existence. So if we look even before Alexander, when we look at the, well, even the Greco-Persian Wars, we see Darius' first attempt to, you know, march on Athens is actually thwarted by a combination of malaria and dysentery. And then, so we see this, even at the Battle of Marathon, we suspect that the Persians, when they disembarked, they had to encamp in swamps. The Athenians actually held the high ground. And so the Persians, again, at the Battle of Marathon were affected by malaria prior to the battle. And then the Peloponnesian Wars, obviously between Athens and, and Sparta and their allies, and the Athenians <laughs> launched the most expensive, actually, Greek expedition uh, of the time period on, the, on Syracuse, which is an ally of Sparta. And so 40,000 Greeks land in Syracuse, and 70% are killed or incapacitated by malaria, and it's an absolute disaster, uh, a crushing <laughs> defeat for, for the Athenians. And then we have something called the Plague of Athens as well during the Peloponnesian Wars, which they think is a hemorrhagic fever and possibly a mosquito-borne pathogen, but probably something more akin to Ebola, uh, among other candidates, but we don't know for sure. So while we have the Athenians and Spartans being crushed by all sorts of pathogens and diseases, including malaria, to the north, Macedon is left relatively untouched from the Peloponnesian Wars. And of course, we know that Alexander's dad, Philip, has not only the space but the time to create essentially the most lethal force in, in the ancient world. And much of Alexander's success actually is owed to Philip and his, again, training and reorganization of the, Mata, the Macedon army prior to Alexander. And Alexander kind of takes over this army when Philip's assassinated and, and tweaks it a little bit more and then marches on Persia. So the background to Alexander is affected by by malaria during the Greco-Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian Wars.
1: So if we move along to the Roman Empire, for the Roman Empire and the city of Rome specifically, the mosquito was both a scourge and a blessing, which is interesting. How, over the years, has the mosquito affected the power of Rome? So I
0: think in the, in the book, I call it, for Rome, both a killer and the savior. So there's something called the Pontine Marshes, which essentially are 310 square kilometers of marshland, marshland which extend from northeast of Rome, south towards Naples and Antio. And so obviously, Rome isn't quite on the coast, but it's tucked in between the coast and these, these Pontine Marshes, which were full of malarious mosquitoes. So historically, when we look at the rise of Rome, And numerous, essentially, suitors trying to conquer Rome, we see it with the Gauls, we see it with the um, the Carthaginians and Hannibal, we see it with the Huns, the Visigoths, and the Vandals. They either don't try to attack Rome, or they try and they flounder in the malarial marshes surrounding Rome. So actually, there's a malarial shield, legions of malarious mosquitoes act as a shield for the city of Rome, which essentially protects Rome. And we see this time and time again, whether it's with Hannibal whether it's with Attila the Hun or Giseric with the, the Visigoths, the Vandals. So it's actually quite remarkable. But then at the same time, what we see is malaria slowly start to sap and bleed the vitality of Rome itself. So when you have your workforce either dying or constantly sick and laid up for months with malarial fevers, your workforce dwindles, whether that be for mining, whether that be for farming, your military force. So it's kind of a give and take with these, these malarial marshes outside Rome but acting as essentially a, definitely a shield, but eventually malaria is one factor in starting to rot Rome and leads to the, the decline of the Roman Empire as as a power because the, the people are just sick all the time.
1: So, of course, the Romans are advanced for their time with the aqueducts and the roads and so forth. Did they ever attempt to drain those swamps?
0: Well, I joke is that the Romans are so adept with water sources, whether that be fountains, whether that be aqueducts, (laughs) but obviously mosquitoes breed in water. So in a way, their beautification projects in Rome are also death traps and just cordially invite mosquitoes to breed. So again, it's a a bit of a, a give and take with these beautification projects. Julius Caesar thought about draining them. Napoleon thought about draining them. And eventually, Mussolini, for whatever he was or wasn't, it's one of actually one of the remarkable success stories of of anti-mosquito or anti-malarial campaign, is that during the 1930s, prior to the Second World War, Mussolini actually does drain these pontine marshes with sophisticated pumping stations and, and, and a whole series of other things. They plant trees, and they actually reclaim this land for, you know, actual farmland on the doorstep of Rome, which which is extremely important because now you have this fertile land to to grow food for an ever-increasing population in Rome. So it's actually quite remarkable. The problem with this is that when the Allies are advancing, trying to circumvent the the Nazi line essentially in in Italy and march towards Rome, they land at Anzio, um, as we know, in 1944. And so prior to this, the Germans, as a deliberate act of biological warfare, they consult malariologists who purposely reflood the Pontine marshes, They reverse the draining pumps, and they pump water in, and they you know destroy all the, um, the anti-malarial pumps and trees and everything that Mussolini had done to reflood these marshes. And so malarious mosquitos are reintroduced. And sure enough, the Allies landed at Anzio and suffer horribly from malaria as do the Germans. That's the thing I always think about this, is mosquitoes don't you know, pick sides <laughs> The a target of opportunities. So yes, the Allies did absolutely get malaria at Anzio as a deliberate act of biological warfare, but so too did the Germans. And actually, my wife's grandfather landed at Anzio, and he got malaria at Anzio, and he actually didn't know how he had contracted malaria at Anzio until I actually told him couple years before he died in in person and told him, Rex, this is how you got Anzio it was biological warfare. And then he also got malaria again at Dachau, he liberated Dachau, because Dachau was the home of the Nazi tropical medicine program. So they were doing horrific experiments Mm -hmm. on, you know, Jewish prisoners. So when they saw the Allies coming and Rex and his unit. Uh, they let loose these malarious mosquitoes, experimental mosquitoes and he got bitten again and got his second round of of malaria and and he had no idea, again, how he contracted malaria outside Munich and and I told him, again, and kind of lifted the curtain on his his war story and how he contracted malaria twice and he had no idea which was, you know, kind of nice for him and his wife and, and my wife's family in general and with his usual stoic self after dinner as I'm telling him this, He's sipping on his two fingers of scotch, uh, which was the whole glass. Uh, and he, he looked at me very stoically and said, hmm, Tim, that makes sense, and just continued to, to drink his scotch. <laughs> Matter of fact. Uh, and his very usual Second World War veteran stoic self. So it, it was, it, there's kind of a family connection to some of the, the research that I that I had
1: done. So, in regards to religion, now this is kind of a large question. And make it concise as you as you would like. First, the spread of Christianity; later, the rise of Islam. What impact has the mosquito had on the proliferation of the world's largest faiths?
0: Yeah, it had an impact on both. And, and as they say in the book, again, I think I actually say yeah, I wouldn't be as so historically reckless to say that malaria was the the prime mover and shaker of promoting Christianity across the Roman Empire, and that would certainly be untrue. However, it was certainly a factor in bringing early converts to to this newfound new faith, if you will. So obviously, as I had mentioned, Italy itself is crawling with with malaria, not just from the De Pontine Marshes, but also along the Po River, uh, the Po River Valley north of, of Rome. So Italy is a hotbed for malaria. In fact, the nickname for malaria is Roman fever. That's what the rest of Europe calls it. And we know that the word malaria is Italian, meaning bad air, which relates to the miasma theory, which was that disease was caused by noxious particles and fumes emanating from stagnant, stagnant swamps which essentially existed from Hippocrates all the way till the 1850s with the discovery of the germ theory. So this, this miasma theory existed basically for, for a really long time until the, the modern germ theory of the 1850s. So Italy was crawling with malaria. And so in the, the polytheistic faith of the Romans, they had a fever god called Febris, and they would pray to her for respite. They'd wear amulets around their neck with the word abracadabra written on them, the magic word, that's where it comes from. Mm. And it was essentially trying to summon a cure for malaria. So we all know the word abracadabra, but that's again where it comes from. So what happens is when Christianity starts to spread early on, early Christians view themselves as caretakers to the sick. And it's actually part of your spiritual duty to care for the sick, free of charge, essentially. So Outside Rome and around Rome, actually, these early Christians opened the first what you could call probably true hospitals to take care of these, you know, quaking malarial masses. So when you're getting fruity health care, essentially, from these Christians and they tell you the stories about Jesus, you know, you know, healing the blind and curing the lepers and rising Lazarus rising from the dead. So they begin to think of Christianity as essentially a a remedial religion or as a healing religion, which it it was from a practical standpoint. So it drew a lot of converts that way because they were being cared for with with their malaria. And so that's that's a short version. But certainly there's other factors, obviously, to the the spread of Christianity, but but that's certainly one of the the factors in the spread of early Christianity, specifically in Italy.
1: So what I've learned here now is that we have the mosquito to thank for abracadabra, and it was Jesus too. It wasn't just the mosquito that spread Christianity.
0: Well, for sure, for sure. And as I as I said, it's obviously not as I would never be so historically record to say it was just Jesus. It was more more not Jesus actually because he practiced Judaism. He was not Christian in the true sense. He sure, was a sure. Jewish man who practiced Judaism. It was Paul of Tarsus with his traveling and his backpacking all around the known world, and his letters to the Corinthians and the Ephesians and everybody else, and and then St. Augustine, those are the two big driving factors of of spreading Christianity, is those two. And when I teach this and I tell my class that Jesus wasn't a Christian in the true sense, they're like, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) I say, well, no, Jesus was a Jewish man who practiced Judaism, who preached very good morals, but he wasn't a Christian as you think of Christianity. I said, that comes after Jesus. And partly because of the mosquitoes.
1: So if we go to the Mongols, the Mongols conquered a huge swath of the known world at that time. How did the Mosquito humble even the mighty Mongol hordes?
0: So obviously, you know, Chinggis Khan and his, his Mongol hordes and their, their horsemanship is actually astounding. And that's actually what makes both Alexander and the Mongols so powerful is their, their unique use of cavalry. So the Mongols take over the known world. It's the, the largest largest contiguous land empire in history. It's astounding, one, how big this is, but how quickly they do it. It, it really is amazing. So they're on the doorsteps or the gates. They're in Eastern Europe, actually. They're in the Balkans, and they're into to Hungary and all the way into Austria in the 1230s and 1240s. So essentially what happens is The spring, winter of 1241, 1242 are extremely wet, and the temperatures are a little bit cooler than normal, which is a very good thing for the proliferation of mosquitoes. So along the Danube River, along the Hungarian plains, which are usually the beginning of the steeps, essentially, so the Mongols would, would rest their horses and graze their horses. So this turns into a giant floodplain. So what happens is it's a series of things that happens with this wet environment that the Mongols are up against on the plains of Hungary. Is One, it robs them their traditional grazing grounds for their horses, which is the crux of their military power, as I just mentioned. Two, this damp, damp weather, the glue for their bows won't coagulate properly, so their bows don't actually function properly, and the bowstrings become not as taut in this humid, kind of damp weather, so their bows are actually faulty from... Working properly, they're not quite serviceable, and then the next one obviously is there is malarious mosquitoes who are breeding in these these wetlands or you know or in the Hungarian plains, and so it's a combination of a series of things that happened with the Mongols' attempt at the invasion or pushing into Western Europe, and so they abruptly turn around and leave and we know from reports and from history that the Mongols were suffering from malaria and in fact, Chingis Khan himself had malaria. suffered horribly from reoccurring bouts of malaria. And how we put all this together is is, there were studies done on tree rings. So that's how we can tell about the environment and the wet conditions during this about-face of the Mongol invasion of Western Europe.
1: Fast forward a few hundred years to the Columbian Exchange, which of course changed the world forever. Did the mosquito have an impact on the voyages of Christopher Columbus or the other early Spanish conquistadors? there's
0: no there's no disease in 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 the western hemisphere of the americas at all before europeans the only one might have been something called Pinto or yaws which was a a non-venereal version of syphilis that might have gone from the americas back to europe with columbus and his crew but even that that's that's a theory that's not you know set in stone so they're disease free and that's just because the indigenous peoples of the americas don't domesticate animals and as we've seen recently with covid it's called, z- there's zoonotic pathogens or what they call jump over or s- spillover pathogens. So the like smallpox origi- uh, or, or, or comes from cows originally. So coronavirus, or re- this novel coronavirus came from bats, we think, and then the pangolin, and then it makes the jump to humans, specifically these viruses. So these are called zoonotic, which in Greek means animal sickness, these the spillover transference of disease. So the indigenous peoples of the Americas don't really domesticate animals, so they don't have these zoonotic pathogens, including mosquitoes. There's obviously tons of mosquitoes in the Americas prior to Europeans, but the American or Western Hemisphere mosquito species have followed essentially a 95 million year evolutionary path away from their parents in the old world, in Africa and Europe. So there is an awful these mosquitoes in the Americas, but they've never known malaria. So Columbus and his crew come over uh, with malaria in their blood, Ah. and the American Anopheles mosquitoes bite the, the Spaniards and immediately begin vectoring malaria not only to the Spaniards again, but also to indigenous peoples. So that's how malaria is introduced to the Western Hemisphere. And it's, a, it's actually an amazing thing that these Anopheles mosquitoes in the Americas hadn't known malaria for 95 million years and are mm. immediately able to vector it to unsuspecting populations and certainly non-immune populations. Not that you can be immune to malaria, but so that's how malaria enters the, the Western Hemisphere. Now, the other mosquito-borne pathogens, specifically yellow fever, which is the only one in the virus class that has a, a vaccine currently, which was created in the 1930s, the rest of the mosquito-borne pathogens come via the African slave trade, unfortunately. So the Aedes aegypti, for example, which is the, the messenger of a lot of death, whether it's chikungunya, West Nile, Zika, yellow fever, it's a stowaway on board the, the slave ships. So it's an African mosquito that is a stowaway on these slave ships, and when they come to the Americas, whether it's Charleston or the ports in Brazil or wherever else, Haiti, Cuba, these mosquitoes <laughs> fly off the ships and find a comfortable sanguine home in their, their new environment and quickly reproduce and, and, and start spreading these viral pathogens. Yellow fever again was the was the big killer prior to the vaccine. So when we look at the Columbian Exchange, obviously animals and plants and there's a whole and people obviously with Africans being cattle transported to the Americas. It's a horrific chapter of, of human history, but From the mosquitoes' point of view, that's the legacy of the Columbian Exchange is is these mosquitoes and mosquito-borne pathogens making their way to the the Americas and, and just crushing the population of indigenous peoples here.
1: So that leads actually perfectly to my next question. Did the mosquito, because what I've learned so far is mosquito has impact ancient times, more modern times, across human history. Did the mosquito play any role in the massive expansion of slavery?
0: Unfortunately, yes, because when we look at the birthplace of human beings, it's in modern Homo sapiens, it's in Africa, and when we look at the, the birthplace of malaria and yellow fever, they're also in Africa. So African peoples had a longer exposure to malari- the different different human malarias and also yellow fever. So yellow fever is pretty simple; it's a virus. So if you get yellow fever and survive you're essentially immune to yellow fever moving forward. So you get it as a kid, you don't die. If you die, obviously you're dead. But if you don't, you're immune moving forward. Malaria is a little bit different. Malaria is not a virus. It's not a bacteria. It's not a worm. It's a very sophisticated protozoan plasmodium parasite. It has a very sophisticated seven-stage reproductive cycle that takes place both in the mosquito and then a secondary host, which could... Literally, amphibians, birds, humans, horses, of oh, the great apes, malaria affects numerous creatures across the planet. So, African peoples had a, a long exposure to this. So, with the, the deadly, there's five human types of malaria. The most the deadliest type of the five is called falciparum malaria. And so, when Bantu farmers begin clear cutting the jungle to plant for agricultural pursuits, to plant plantains and yams, they essentially unleash this new kind of mosquito with this falciparum malaria. And very quickly, what they develop is a, a genetic natural selective response called sickle cell. So we've all heard of sickle cell. And that, the story I use in my book is Ryan Clark, the safety from the Pittsburgh Steelers who almost died in Denver. We didn't know he had sickle cell. So one in 14 African-Americans are still affected by sickle cell, which is it's crazy uh, when you think about that. So what it does essentially is it it prevents the malaria parasite from latching onto the blood cell and reproducing because blood cells are normally roundish or oval donut-shaped, and, and these cells are sickle, so it fools the parasite, therefore they can't get sick. But at the same time, what sickle cell does is it robs the blood ability to, to carry oxygen to, to the organs. So it's a hasty, very hasty natural selective response to what must have been absolutely genocidal, cataclysmic death rates from falciparum malaria for human beings to promote this imperfect response. So it's again, it's it's a savior, but it's also a killer because before modern medicine, if you inherited sickle cell from both parents, you inherited a death sentence. And if you inherited sickle cell from one, which is called sickle cell trait, you'd live to roughly 24 years old. But just long enough to pass on sickle cell to keep the human population alive. So it's absolutely stunning that the, the mosquito has changed effectively human beings' DNA. And there's other genetic responses to the other kinds of malaria, such as Duffy antigen negativity to vivax malaria. So what happens is Europeans originally bring over European indentured servants to work on these these plantations, these coffee and sugar, uh, tobacco plantations in the Caribbean or they use local indigenous people as slave labor. Well, what happens is the indigenous peoples unfortunately die in droves from mosquito-borne and other pathogens as to these indentured Spanish or English indentured servants. So they don't know why this is happening, but they realize is that Africans can withstand you know, these climates is what they think better than indentured servants or indigenous people. And unfortunately, it's because of their longer association with these mosquito-borne pathogens, specifically malaria, and these genetic adaptations to fight back against malaria. And so the slave trade is essentially kicked into hyperdrive, if you will.
1: So Christopher North, or more specifically, John Wilson wrote, his majesty's dominions on which the sun never sets, which of course is changed to the sun never sets on the British Empire. So after our discussion here, would it be more apt to say there is never a time a mosquito isn't feasting on an Englishman's blood? <laughs>
0: pretty, pretty much, because if you look all over the—I'm Canadian, so I'm, I'm part of Her Majesty's empire still as part of the, <laughs> the British Commonwealth. <laughs> so, yes, if you look at mosquito-borne pathogens, obviously, throughout the India, the, the Caribbean— I mean, even as far north as Canada. When Canada they were building the Rideau Canal in Canada's capital of Ottawa, they had canal malaria that far north, which is, is shocking to some people. So yes, you know, it leads into essentially the mosquito, which is I think one of the questions you have in the bank, is the American Revolution and the, the help that um, generals Washington and Lafayette got from General Anopheles who feasted on the British Redcoats in the final Southern campaign of the war. So if we look at just a specific example of the American Revolution, in the early stages of the war, the war was fought in the North, away from the hothouse of mosquito-borne pathogens in the Carolinas, Georgia, in those southern colonies, which were pred- um, endemic mosquito-borne disease. So there was mosquito-borne diseases, malaria and yellow fever in the North. It was just, there were epidemics. They came in the, in the summer and then left. Whereas in the southern colonies, it was constant malaria and yellow fever. So by 1780, the British are a little General Clinton is a little frustrated that he can't um, go General Washington into essentially a decisive battle in the north. So the British and General Clinton shift their overall strategy or grand strategy to a southern campaign where they think there's actually more loyalists that will join the British cause in the more recent colonies, specifically of South Carolina and Georgia. So they shift their overall focus to the south, and, and they dump General Cornwallis in the south with 9,000 British soldiers, the largest British army actually up to this time in the war. And so if we look at, at General Cornwallis's battle lines on the map or his, his, his march lines, it's actually a crazy zigzagging all over the place across the Carolinas. And you look at this and go, what is he doing? And so he's fighting the Americans, General Green. He's actually winning most of the battles, Cornwallis is. And yet he's zigzagging all over the place. And he's not actually running away from the Americans. What he's doing, and he says this very clearly in his own diaries, in his own correspondences, in his own letters, is that he's trying to find somewhere that is free of malaria, or what he calls, the British called malaria, the ague the ague that is ruining my army. The British army is being cut to pieces by malaria in 1780, 81, zigzag across the Carolinas. So that's why what he's actually doing. And then he's ordered by General Clinton, who still thinks there's going to be an attack on New York City. So he wants to bring Cornwallis closer to New York. So he orders them to hold up in your town, now, this time, York, Yorktown is a, is a tiny hamlet that's situated in, in between York and James Rivers on some Tidewater estuaries. It's essentially rice fields, it's swampland. And Cornwallis says, "I don't think this is a good idea, sir. This is a sickly place. Like We can't, we can't mount a defense here. But he follows orders." And as we all know, General Lafayette, the French Navy comes and steals off the coast. And General Lafayette plays cat and mouse with Cornwallis all the way to Yorktown. And then General Washington shows up and they lay siege to Yorktown in August, which is the prime, 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 prime time for mosquitoes. So what happens is essentially General Anopheles lays siege to the British as well and Cornwallis surrenders. And when he surrenders, he says very clearly to General Clinton in his correspondences, I didn't surrender because of anything the enemy did. I surrendered because I only have 35% of my soldiers who can even stand up. The rest are either sick, dead, or or dying of malaria. And so it's actually the malarial fevers at Yorktown that forced Cornwallis to surrender. So the Anopheles mosquito is a founding mother of the United States.
1: You know, I'm glad you brought up Nathaniel Green. I don't think he gets enough credit. And, of course, he drags Cornwallis. He's running away, basically, but he drags Cornwallis into the backcountry. Does he know what he's doing in that regard? Does he know that the British are getting sick?
0: Well, it's a little bit of both if you look at what General Green says. he, He says, we lose, we run away, and we fight another day. Like, he keeps saying this, and he just keeps fighting. But at the same time, when they're capturing British prisoners, and they actually have some British who defect as well, when they show up, Green in his reports writes that the British look like a band of sickly skeletons. He knows they're they're sick. And he absolutely knows they're sick. Again, at the time, they don't know what is causing malaria. They think, again, it's this miasma. But at the same time, if you're dragging the British through the swamps, then that is, it's not the particles rising from, you know, stagnant swamps. It's the mosquitoes breeding in these swamps. And so we actually see throughout history what we think might be acts of biological warfare as early as the Germans against the Romans, where they're luring the Romans into swampland to get sick from the miasma. Now it's the mosquitoes that actually cause the disease. but So we're not sure if Green knows that, but he does mention that the,
1: the British are a sickly crew. So the final question here on the American Revolution, then, who deserves more credit for the birth of America then, George Washington or General Anopheles?
0: Well, I think I wouldn't take, <laughs> I wouldn't discredit General Washington. <laughs> you got to give well, him credit, certainly right? certainly General Lafayette, <laughs> because I'm a big fan of, of General Lafayette, and I don't think he gets enough credit in modern history books, and that's not to take away anything from, from General Washington, but General Lafayette was, was a genius. Uh, and he's amazing. And he's a founding father of the United States as well. And, and we forget about General Lafayette. Unless you're a hardcore historian, people don't really know who General Lafayette is. And I think he gets, um, in a way, he gets negated or left out quite a bit. So I think it's a com- obviously a combination. Like most historical events, it lies on a series of things or a combination of things. And in the case of the American Revolution, you have the leadership of General Washington and General Lafayette and others. And obviously you have some aid from, from general Anopheles, but specifically at the right time too. And in timing is sometimes everything in war and, and the timing of, of, her, <laughs> of her siege or her approach on the British is
1: perfect. So with thousands and thousands of northern men marching into the south with the army during the American Civil War, does the Mosquito play a role in the length and the level of devastation in the Civil War?
0: Yeah, the mosquito in the Civil War is essentially twofold. There's two kind of influences that the mosquito has in the Civil War. And as you mentioned, so how malaria works is the more you suffer, the less you suffer. So with repeated infections of malaria, the symptoms become less severe and the chances of dying become less likely. So I don't suggest this as an inoculation strategy, but if you're one of these Southern boys from Louisiana, you grow up constantly getting malaria. It's just, it's like getting the common cold to them. It's just a normal, you survive and then you get it again and it's less severe, less severe, less severe, less severe. But if you're one of these Yankee boys from Michigan, you don't have any experience with malaria. So when we see these northern armies crossing into this, this threshold or this malaria, crossing this malaria threshold into these southern states, even as northerly as Virginia, which I'll get to, it's their first exposure to malaria. So they suffer on a, on a relative scale far more than the, the Confederate soldiers do because of prior exposure. It's called seasoning is the term they use. You get seasoned to malaria. You never get immune, but you're, you're seasoned to it. So what we see in General McClellan's Peninsula Campaign, aside from all his hurry up and wait and, and you know, buffoonery, because <laughs> he he's absolutely performs horribly, as, as we know, is that, again, his line of approach to Richmond is along the York and James River. He goes through Yorktown. And so <laughs> these revolutionary mosquitoes then feast on uh, the ancestors of those revolutionary mosquitoes feast on McClellan's Yankee boys. And, and, and again, this is in the course, he himself gets malaria uh, during the Peninsula campaign. And he, he's, he's completely out of it for almost a week, where he's not even really in command anymore. So it slows up McClellan's army in the Peninsula campaign. The Confederates are dug in, obviously, around Richmond. They have the high ground. So they don't suffer near the rates of malaria as the, the Union Army does. And then obviously, McClellan flounders on the outskirts of Richmond and Lee counterattacks and forces them back through these, these swamplands. So it essentially de- it, it delays the end of the war in a way, and it allows Lincoln to, to issue the, the Emancipation Proclamation. But on the other hand, in the final years of the war, so quinine is the only, it's an anti-malaria. They don't know why it works. It comes from the bark from a tree in, in South America that was discovered in the, the mid-1600s by uh, indigenous people, but by Jesuit missionaries watching the indigenous people of Peru. The Union is is stocked with quinine, and we see this in Grant's Pittsburgh campaign mm. in 1863, and, and he, he he has tons of it. And then obviously into the final years, where the when the blockade starts to take effect, you have quinine prices upwards of $500 an ounce in the Confederacy on the black market. So without quinine, the Confederacy starts to suffer more from malaria than you see the Union soldiers, even in the the South, like Vicksburg, for example, because the Union is stockpiled with quinine. So malaria starts to drain the Confederate forces in the the final couple years more than the Union forces. So it's kind of a a double-edged sword in the, in
1: the American Civil War. I have a local example, and it's in the Civil War. Grant enters the Civil War in Illinois, moves from Galena to Springfield, and then he takes his army to my hometown of Quincy, which sits on the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. he ra- arrives in July. And the largest open spaces are down on the river bottoms. The city's up on a bluff. But down on the river bottoms is where he camps. And all the locals are basically saying, what are you doing? You can't stay there. Yeah, This is going to be very unhealthy for the Army.
0: Yeah, and they, they call it the Memphis Line, actually. When they're planning the Civil War, like when the war, in the Confederacy, Fort Sumter and the war breaks out, the Union planners basically say they, they have Memphis and they draw a line east-west from Memphis and say anything south of this Memphis Line is dangerous to Union forces because of mosquito-borne pathogens. Again, they don't know what's the mosquito, but. They know these seasonal diseases or um, endemic diseases. And so they're very wary of, even when we look at Corinth and some of the things that happened in the West, they're very wary of chasing Beauregard or chasing the Confederates south into further into the deep south. And they kind of let them go because of this Memphis line. And eventually, as we know with Vicksburg, Grant finally took Vicksburg because of amazing planning and some some gusto and his his military genius for sure. But he also made very careful medical plans and made sure to have ample supplies of quinine. And he says this himself when the first two attempts to take Vicksburg earlier in the war were a miserable failure, partly because of malaria. The, those Union soldiers are cut to pieces because of malaria, and so Grant tries to make some precautions with quinine against this. And also, it's just. A brilliantly planned and executed campaign. And I believe Grant says it's his best campaign of the war.
1: So moving forward to the 20th century, global conflicts like World War Two must have been impacted by incredibly, actually, by the mosquito. You've already mentioned the Allied invasion of Italy. But I have a question about the end of the war specifically, because of all of the soldiers and Marines and sailors in the Pacific War, the Pacific Theater, did the Mosquito factor in to the decision for the United States? They always mention the invasion, but I'm wondering if sickness or malaria or the Mosquito has any impact on the use of the atomic bomb.
0: In my research, I didn't come across anything specifically with the decision to drop the atomic bomb on Japan. And I think we know know, those decisions have a war-winning weapon. Why wouldn't I use it? The saving lives argument and certainly to tell Stalin that, look what we have and you don't. And so there's numerous (laughs) factors, I think, that go into that. The big one is it's a war-winning weapon, and this war is horrific, and why wouldn't we use it if we have it? So no, but certainly malaria and and yellow fever and other ones played a crucial role in the Second World War. In fact, during the initial Pacific campaign, General MacArthur is livid, and he says, you know, this is going to be a hell of a long war. For every division I have fighting, I have one division on leave and another division in the hospital recuperating from malaria. And so he urges the U.S. War Department to start something called the Malaria Project, which is given the same scope and security and secrecy as the Manhattan Project, and it's essentially to find a cure for malaria or at least find something to help you know, alleviate this, this burden of disease that's plaguing Allied soldiers in the Pacific. And so what comes out of that really is is Adabrin, which is an anti-malarial, but chloroquine as well, which is an older, newer, but older anti-malarial, and DDT. So they start spraying DDT by 1943 in areas of operation uh, in the Pacific, but also in Italy and also in North Africa. So there is a you know some benefits that do come out of the malaria project. And it's only after the war when we realized that the Japanese are suffering equal malaria rates as the U.S., Australian, New Zealand soldiers in the Pacific, or with General Slim in Myanmar and Burma. The, the actually, Slim's force, the British force, was crushed by malaria, but the Japanese actually suffered worse than the British force. So looking back with the research, we can see that it was Malaria was distributed relatively evenly across the Pacific, so it, was, it wasn't a decisive factor in giving an advantage to one side or the other, but it certainly was a, a huge factor or a burden to all forces in, in, the, in the Pacific theater.
1: So you mentioned DDT, um, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, with that haunting image of a spring with no birds singing Focused on the dangers of pesticides, which is, of course, one of the few ways to combat the world's deadliest predator, but your book explains how the use of pesticides to combat mosquitoes is a double-edged sword. The mosquito is able to adapt and become even more resilient.
0: So Silent Spring comes out in 1962, and it's written almost <laughs> not exclusively, but specifically about DDT and the, the environmental in human damage and degradation that this, this pesticide is causing. So there's a couple of things here. The first thing is DDT is an absolute wonder chemical when it comes to eradicating mosquitoes. So when used a specifically targeting mosquitoes, DDT reduces malaria rates by 90% in most parts of the world where it's used. So malaria rates in Italy, for example, fell by 98% with the use of DDT. Malaria in the United States is eradicated with DDT. So the last case of domestic malaria in the U.S. was 1951. But we forget that the U.S. was awash with malaria up and down the Mississippi River Valley, all the southern states. As I said, malaria was as far north as, as Ottawa in Canada. So these, why we don't have malaria anymore in the U.S. is part and parcel because of DDT. So DDT is a wonder chemical from that standpoint. So Joni Mitchell writes her song, Big Yellow Taxi, right? She says, (laughs) a fellow Canadian, she says, farmers, farmers, put away your DDT. Give me spots on my apples, leave me the birds and the bees. She's right in reprimanding farmers. Because what happens is in 1949, DDT is made commercially available to farmers. And what they do is they carpet bomb the planet with DDT from an agricultural standpoint. That is what causes the environmental degradation. That is what causes all the cancers in humans and, and killing the birds, the bees, and the fish. It's not the surgical use of DDT strictly to spray for mosquitoes. If we had kept DDT just spraying for mosquitoes, you wouldn't have seen all that. It's the, carpet, it's the agricultural carpet bombing of the world with DDT that causes that. So what happens is we're inadvertently pounding the mosquito with DDT. And as I said, it is a master of evolution. And depending on the mosquito species, it takes anywhere from two years to 20 years for mosquitoes to become fully resistant to DDT. The average is about seven years. So, you know, if we release DDT commercially in 1949, by the time Rachel Carson is writing or published Silent Spring in 1962, the world is crawling with mosquitoes that basically say, thanks for the shower in DDT, and it doesn't work anymore. So why the U.S. bans DDT has more to do with its ineffectiveness than it does for many environmental clout or environmental movement or certainly anything that Rachel Carson wrote. Now, I'm not knocking what she does in the movement that she starts. And obviously, in, in, <laughs> with global warming and what we're dealing with right now, it's important, and she kicked off the modern environmental movement. But from a strictly DDT point of view, it's because it simply doesn't do its job anymore. It's outlived its, its effectiveness.
1: So my last question for you, is there a long-term solution to the devastating effects of the mosquito worldwide? I know it's been mentioned that CRISPR could possibly be used.
0: Well, there's a few things, and again, I think it's important for your listeners to realize that as I said earlier, there's 3,500 give or take species of mosquitoes on the planet, and only 6% are even capable of vectoring these pathogens. So no one is promoting the eradication of all mosquitoes off the face of the planet. (laughs) That's not what anybody wants to do or is going to do. Because simply put, most mosquitoes don't vector these pathogens. They're simply harmless. They bite because they need blood, but oh well, you get a little itch and and you you let a female mosquito be a mom. So oh well, you donated some blood. So it would be targeting very specific mosquito species such as the Anopheles gambi, which is the big malaria mosquito, or this Aedes aegypti, as I keep mentioning, which is the the deliverer of so many of these viruses, yellow fever, dengue, Zika, West Nile. So there's a few avenues to take. And I, I, again, I equate it to the military because I was in, in the, the Army for nine years. You don't go into war with one weapon system. <laughs> you don't just say, all right, we're only going to use tanks. We're going to have no Air Force, no artillery, you know, no infantry. So I think we need to combat the mosquito and these pathogens with multiple weapon systems. So one would be specifically targeting the mosquito itself for example, with CRISPR. So what's being done in labs and even in, in the real world is you CRISPR. So CRISPRing is a gene-altering new technology that you can cut and paste genes at will to create essentially whatever you want. Now, there's a super scary downside to that. I think of Star Wars and the Clone Wars and the Clone Army you could <laughs> make with CRISPR. But so you would CRISPR male mosquitoes and release them into the wild and thereby they would produce only male mosquitoes or infertile or stillborn offspring, thereby bringing down that mosquito species, thereby bringing down those pathogens. The other one would be to CRISPR mosquitoes with what they call a gene drive, which would be passed down the bloodlines, pardon the pun, of this mosquito species, where you simply CRISPR the mosquito and their offspring to simply make them incapable of vectoring these pathogens. So therefore you don't actually kill the mosquito species, but you bring down the pathogen because the mosquito can't continue its transmission. So there's also malaria vaccines. We call it a vaccine. Malaria is not a virus, but they still use the term vaccine that are trying are being developed in labs all over all over the world. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has donated almost five billion dollars to mosquito research thus far and part of their their grants goes to malaria vaccines so there's a you know numerous avenues to kind of attack this whether you attack the delivery system which would be the mosquito or go after the pathogen itself so i figure the more weapons we try to put out there in our in our eternal battle with uh, with the mosquito the better
1: well before we leave i have to say rumble mavs
0: thank you did i get that right <laughs> Yep, Colorado Mesa University, the Mavericks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I had to include that.
0: Yeah, and being a Canadian, of course, I coach the I coach the hockey team here too. Shocking, right? Um, I always say my real job as a history professor. My fun job is getting to run a Division three hockey program, which is a dream come true for me.
1: <laughs> I wish they could get hockey here at the local university. We're up in Illinois, um, but no hockey team.
0: Really, that's shocking. Very shocking. I've actually had some players from, from Illinois play for, for me here, uh, two or three of them.
1: You know, there is one little hotbed locally that's close to us. We're about two hours north of St. Louis, but St. Louis has become a little hotbed of, of hockey prospects.
0: Yeah, St. Louis is a, starting to become a real hockey town, and you're, you're seeing some of the younger generation in the NHL now coming out of the St. Louis youth hockey system. There's, quite a, there's three or four of them now, I think, in the NHL coming out of St. Louis. So I think the game is spreading across the US and becoming more popular in, in, in the United States was just certainly a good thing and it's not just limited to the to the Minnesota, Michigan, Massachusetts states anymore. And in Colorado's becoming a huge hockey state as well, so that's a good thing.
1: Well thanks, Dr. weingard I don't know if it's supposed to be fun talking about mosquitoes, but I had a lot of fun.
0: <laughs> I, I always have fun doing it, obviously. Uh thanks so much for having me. It was my pleasure.
1: I would like to thank my guest today, scholar and author Timothy Weingard. And if you would like to get his book, The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator, it's as simple as clicking on the link in the description below. It is a fantastic, phenomenal book. The featured brew was Vicious Mosquito IPA from the Sun River Brewing Company of Sun River, Oregon. If you liked our talk today, please share the episode with a friend. All of the directories have a great sharing function. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. Simply hit the subscribe button on the podcast directory that you use and get new episodes, as we said earlier, immediately when they're released. This is the only way to get new shows right away. For more information on the podcast, like the History of GoGo Facebook page or check out our YouTube channel. The music was provided by the band Bones Fork, new music coming extremely soon. And finally, to our growing list of listeners and supporters from 50 countries and hundreds of cities across America, again, I have to say thank you. There are many more great episodes on the way with discussions on JFK versus Dulles, the history of the University of Notre Dame, Robert E. Lee and the Lost Cause, and the history of Branch Ricky's Redbirds just in time for spring training. So join us again next time when we talk, think, and drink on History of Go-Go.